So what we're doing today, this will be the third and final Sunday for a while. I mean, we'll, we'll do this again. We'll do this as much as you need to because this is really, I think, where the rubber hits the road, where we can actually have a, a sort of a conversation. I dominate, of course. I do most of the talking. But um, it's, it's a time for us to air some questions we might have, some concerns, some things that just don't make sense. It came out of doing the red letter study for two months and then realizing that a lot of this was kicking up stuff at the bottom of the aquarium that people needed to talk about. And I was getting some comments back. So I said, all right, let's do that. But let's do that in an open forum where everybody here and everybody on the other side of that camera can have a chance to hear how we deal with certain issues that, that are difficult for us. And that's what we've been doing for the last two Sundays, and we'll, we'll do it again. I've got a page of, of some questions here that have been given to me over the week, but uh, maybe let's start with, uh, is there anything off the floor this morning? Anything that you've been thinking of that you wanted to ask? Okay, go. Okay. Sorry. I brought up the scripture, but... There is a heated debate over this scripture all over Twitter. And so I, I want to ask you what you think. It's 1 Timothy 2.12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. I think it's great. <laughs> Thanks, husband. <laughs> no, really, it's a, it, there, there's a real heated debate over that. And there well should be. Yeah. There well should be. This is, you know, a lot of these questions, it's like a, a, a full plate of spaghetti, but it's all one noodle. And it's like, where exactly do you start? Um, let, me, let me start here. There is something in, um, in hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the art and science of, of biblical um, interpretation. And uh, in hermeneutics, there is a concept of prescriptive and descriptive commands. Prescriptive and descriptive. So prescriptive commands are ones that are telling us that we need to do something Descriptive commands are the ones that are showing us what was done at a certain place in time. And they don't necessarily have any prescriptive value for us. Now, for those, remember we talked about on the first Sunday, the way that you look at the inspiration of Scripture is going to have everything to do with your ability to interpret Scripture really dealing with the evidence that is there. And, and the way that Scripture was interpreted in ancient times and you know various times throughout the last 2,000 years. So if you believe that God literally possessed the bodies of the authors of Scripture and every single word was written just the way that he wanted it to be written, um, then you're going to have a problem with prescriptive and descriptive commands because to you, every word carries equal weight. Every word is just as true. Every word is just as God-inspired. But that's not what the evidence shows us in the, in the biblical text. And when you look at the way that the Bible was developed and transmitted to us, you realize that every writer has had the ability to write with his or her own personality, knowledge of language and history and culture. And so what we see is a vast spectrum. You know, sometimes the language is very highbrow and, and very well articulated, and sometimes it's, it's kind of street language. And we see everything in between. And so what the evidence is showing us is that the people were inspired by God to write what they wrote. Not so much the words were inspired, but the people were inspired to write. And they wrote as they would write in terms of their own knowledge of their culture at the time. And so that's the perspective I'm coming from. So if, I, if I'm telling you about prescriptive and descriptive commands, that kind of necessitates that sort of, of look at scripture. But I'm telling you, it is a well-established rule of hermeneutics. So I'm not just pulling this out of the clouds because I want to tell you what I want to tell you. All right? So prescriptive and descriptive commands. What's the difference between the two of them? Well, if you look at the book of Leviticus, where the, uh, the Bible is telling us that we have to not have two different types of, of threads in our garments. We don't sow two different types of crops in our fields. We don't eat shellfish. We don't eat pork. Now, how many of us actually follow those commands? They're absolute commands, right? But we understand that they're descriptive. They are describing what was taking place in ancient Israel at the time. And there were good reasons for those then. But they don't translate into our time now. Yet when Jesus pulls from the Old Testament, notice Jesus never pulls from those kind of commands. Out of the entire book of Leviticus, he pulls one passage, one verse, 1918. What does it say? 
love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. That's the only verse he pulls from Leviticus. That is a prescriptive command. That's good for everyone, everywhere, all time, all the time, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with your whole heart, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19.18. And so what he's doing there is he's showing us prescriptive commands as opposed to the others. We talked about Paul. This comes from Paul. We talked about Paul, I think it was last week, where Paul is creating and establishing these church gatherings, these ecclesia, these called out groups all throughout the eastern Mediterranean basin. And he's administering them by surrogate. He's sending people in his place. He is also sending letters. He's doing everything he can to hold them together as he is this itinerant pastor who moves around from church to church. And so it's a difficult task for him, especially at the very beginning when things were still so wide and woolly. There was no overarching authority. There was no pope. There was no sense of church. There were just all these little gatherings in all these cities around the the, uh, Roman Empire. And so he's trying to hold these together. He's trying to distinguish them from every other Tom, Dick, and Harry who is is standing on a street corner and gathering a crowd under whatever auspices they are. There had to be some distinctions made. Also, Paul believed that Jesus was coming back, all the early Christians, the first followers of Jesus, believed that Jesus was coming back in their lifetimes. And so the time is short. You see Paul saying that over and over again. The time is short. And in this present crisis, he says, the time is short in this present crisis. So what was happening? Well, they were being persecuted. Not only were were they being persecuted by Rome, they were also being persecuted by the Jews. And so in the face of all of that persecution, in the face of getting the Roman boot absolutely put down on them where they couldn't uh, worship in public at all, he says, in this present crisis, since the time is short, he says, don't really fight these social battles right now. We know that they're unjust, but right now the time is to prepare yourself for the coming of your Lord. And I have said, you know, often that if, I believe that if Paul knew that it would be 2,000 years and counting and we're still waiting for Jesus to come back, that he would have said essentially the same thing. But he would have said it, fight the interior revolution first. Prepare yourself. Get yourself into that silence and solitude and stillness where you really are connected with God so that when you turn your attention outward, you'll be part of the solution and not just an ego-filled part of the problem again. So he's in that order. Do this first and then. So he's basically saying, don't rock the boat. He's basically saying, stay within the norms of of society for now because Jesus is coming back. So if you're a slave, stay a slave. Who would say that that's moral? But that's what he says. Just be a good slave, he said. You know? Be submitted to your master and do your job well. If you're single, stay single. If you're married, stay married. And if you're a woman... Stay submitted, as this culture demands. So what he's doing there is he's saying, if we rock these boats, all the attention is going to focus outward. It's going to bring down you know, the rain of fire on us. And that's not what we're about right now in this present crisis. So that was a part, especially of Jewish custom and culture, where the women didn't teach the men. In fact, the women couldn't even be in the same space as the men. They had a lattice that was, uh, would be brought across. So the women were behind the lattice and the men were in the court. The men were the ones having the theological discussions. So the men were the one, one who were teaching. It was a patriarchal society. We're not saying it's fair. It's just the way that it was. Should a woman keep her head covered? That was another question. And Paul says, yes, keep your head covered. But the context of the question is they were meeting in people's homes. Now, when a woman, went, a woman went out, she had to keep her head covered. And in that culture, it was kind of like a woman going out topless. In this culture, they kept their head covered. It was a sign of modesty, right? But now they're in their home. So you can imagine the question to Paul was, when I'm in my house, do I have to keep my head covered? I don't want people, you know, I'm just around the house. He says, yeah, but now it's public space when people are over, so keep your head covered. So 2,000 years later, I'm going to a church growing up as a kid where women are bobby pinning Kleenex to their head if they forgot their hat or their scarf. Taking prescriptively what was really a descriptive command, Paul was giving it for that place and that time. It made sense to him at that place and that time. But that doesn't mean forever and for always. We have Saddleback being excommunicated from the Southern Baptist Convention because now they have a woman pastor. Another thing that would go against uh, Paul's teaching. 
but that was a descriptive command. We have to understand the difference between the two. We, it's, the burden is on us to make the distinction between what is prescriptive and descriptive. Does that mean we can give it, get it right every time? No, of course not. But you know what? We can be a little bit commonsensical about it. Because Paul, even though he's been gigged as misogynistic because of the way of these particular teachings that are tearing up the uh, social media environment at least, he was the one who promoted Priscilla to actually a leader in the Roman church. And he did that with other women as well. Women were key to his ministry. He wasn't afraid to put a woman in a place of power. He did it. Jesus as well. Jesus treated women as equals. Mary Magdalene was the one who actually preached to the rest of the disciples because she was the one who saw him risen first. He says, go back and tell the others. He's putting her in the place of an evangelist. He's putting her in the place of an apostle. He's putting her in a place of power. So we know that. And because, and like we talked about yesterday, God is neither male nor female. He's both and he's neither. We anthropomorphize him for our own convenience so we have someone to talk to and imagine. But of course, he's spirit. But he encompasses everything it means to be both masculine and feminine. He's the perfect balance of the two. And so no one should ever be subjugated, ever. And so my answer specifically, that was a long time away around, but my answer specifically to that question is a descriptive command. It does not carry any weight for us now, and it doesn't need to, and that does not violate the sanctity of Scripture in my mind. In fact, it makes it much, much more valuable because it makes it common sense. It makes it able to adapt to every culture that is going to encounter it. Otherwise, it's only going to be useful and encapsulated in a culture that existed 2,000 years ago and hasn't since, right? But for us now, how do we apply it? Now, how do you apply keeping your head covered, ladies? Well, the, the application there, or the, the, maybe the prescriptive command buried inside it is, yeah, let's have some modesty here. Let, let's, let's stay within common sense bounds within our culture. As far as women teaching, uh, that one I can't even find a silver lining for. <laughs> because I think women have so much to offer, and they offer the balance of all the teaching that we need. But that's the key prescriptive and descriptive commands. It does not violate our understanding of Scripture. It doesn't violate the sanctity of the inspiration of Scripture understood from a certain perspective. Yeah. Thank you, Scotty. Hi, Dave. This isn't really a question. It's just a comment based on what you're saying. But, you know, Paul also says, in him we live and move and have our being. And to me, that's just a wonderful sentence about the freedom that, and the creativity that's needed in every moment of our lives. And when people claim a scripture and try to live within the rigidity, I think it's based out of fear because people look for rules that they just want to follow. But if we really look to Jesus, in him was life and his life is the light of men. And I think it takes a certain degree of a willingness to trust instincts and to trust God and to be willing to make a mistake if need be. But the rigidity is really, it's like an old snakeskin that needs to be shed if we really want the freedom that's found in Jesus and in God. It's just a comment. I know it's not a Amen question. Amen and hallelujah. I don't know, it sounded a lot like a woman was teaching us just then, didn't it? <laughs> Spot on, Nina, thank you. Yeah, Kathleen. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Get you on the mic. Thank you, Pastor. As I was driving to church this morning, I caught the tail end of a conversation on the Bible. The gentleman was speaking about the fourth and fifth dimension. Could you address that? In other words, he's saying simultaneously, if we're praising God where we are, we're actually in front of God in the fourth dimension. Ooh, all right. Well, you know, how many dimensions are there? Now, the fifth dimension was a singing group in the 60s, first of all, so we know what that's about. H.G. Um, uh, Wells said the fourth dimension was time. 
you know, um, because uh, the three dimensions could only exist if they had duration, and so the fourth dimension was time. Obviously, Einstein speaks of a fourth dimension because he's speaking about the curvature of space. Um, now there are scientists that are saying there could be ten dimensions, or there could be infinite dimensions if you get into string theory and all this sort of thing. And so, what, what's a dimension? Well, a dimension would be an alternate plane of existence, I suppose. Uh, for our purposes, it would be an alternate plane of consciousness, you know, a different layer of consciousness. If you want to think of it in terms of vibration, you know, we're vibrating here in the, in the realm of matter at the lowest possible frequencies. Um, multiplexing, have you ever heard that term before? Multiplexing is having, for instance, uh, simultaneous conversations on the same pair of copper wires but all at different frequencies. So that's how you can get a lot more use out of the pair of copper wires in your house that used to <laughs> used to use uh, power telephones. Now everything's wireless. But the same thing is happening in the wireless frequencies. You've got things that are being picked up over a broad band. And so we could be sitting in this room, and there could be other total other planes of existence or dimensions all happening simultaneously in the space. We're only aware of the one that we're vibrating at. You know, I don't know if he was getting into all that stuff. The ancients had the idea of multiple um, levels of heaven. There was a third heaven in uh, two th or three layers of heaven um, to the ancient Jews. The, this first was uh, our physical existence. The next was a realm of the sky that they could see. And then beyond that was the realm of the throne of God. And so when Paul is caught up to the third heaven, that's where he's going, actually in the presence of God. What I would assume that this pastor is talking about is that sort of characteristic that when we worship here on our lowest plane, that it's resonating throughout all those other dimensions at the same time. So God is also present here. But we're not aware of God because God is what, vibrating at an infinite frequency, perhaps, but that it all resonates together. She asked about the thin veil. You're talking about the thin veil that uh, Paul talks about. Now we look through the glass darkly and then face to face, uh, and that glass can also be considered a veil. Um, he's talking about the fact that we can't see the spiritual dimension. We can't see that. You know, right now we're walking about, about blind. He says we're walking by faith, but not by sight. You know, that idea there that we can't see these other dimensions. We can't see God's spirit. Um, but then we will, because then we'll be in a different dimension. We'll be at a different frequency. I mean, you can look at this any way you want to. But it, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a speculative or subjective way of trying to imagine how does this work? You know, how are we both physical and, and spiritual at the same time, matter and and uh, immaterial, just pure energy at the same time. And these are ways of looking at it. So is, it, is, that, is that enough? <laughs> she said, now she says it doesn't matter. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> you know, but, but you know, I'll, I'll get right with you. Um, you know, if some of these things we talk about seem like, well, who cares? It's how many angels dance on the head of the pin. Well, then obviously take what you need and leave the rest. But, you know, for anybody who might have been hearing that sort of thing and just had a question, okay, well, that's one way of looking at it. It's not every way of looking at it. It may not be what this pastor meant at all. I'm just surmising, and I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's probably what he was talking about. But, yeah, not all of these questions or answers are going to have equal value for everybody. But, um, you know, take what you need, leave the rest. Okay, let's get a mic over here. This actually comes from Dan Pitkin. Um, Go ahead. He, he texted me. This came from Dan Pitkin. And he said, you know, in the conversations today, my question to you this week is the following. Our Christian faith and God's love is so important to us. So how do we, how does God love, let me start over. So how does God love come to us in other forms, like music, dreams, actual events? That makes sense? Did I do that right? Okay, never mind. Okay. Well, the first thing is to tell Dan you must be present to win. Okay. If he wants to ask a question, he could plant himself. No. Okay. You know, how does, he, basically the question is, you know, God's love is the most important thing to us, for us to ascertain, for us to receive in this life. How about other ways that we can receive this love? And to, it was music, and maybe art, maybe different ways. Okay. Um, 
I, I think it, it really me, it matters how you understand God's love. You know, what, what is God's love really when it comes right down to it? When I look at love, and then we have to get away from the usual way that we look at love. If we think of love as a, a sentiment, as a feeling, you know, that's, that's what we normally think of love. It's how we feel. But we know that that's not accurate. It's not durable. We feel this. We feel that. Our, our feelings are all over the place. And so if love is just a feeling, then it's not something that is going to be able to stick with us. It's not going to certainly be eternal. Well, then maybe love's a behavior. It's doing loving things for each other. But we can do loving things for all sorts of reasons that have nothing to do with love. It can still be a form of self-aggrandizement or whatever. And so love is not accurately a feeling or a behavior. So what is love really? And I think Thomas Merton nailed it the best. He said that love is the identification with the beloved. When you completely identificate, when you completely identify with another person, that, that union, that connection, where you sort of lose track of where you end and the other begins, that state in which whatever you do to the other, you're simultaneously doing for yourself and vice versa, that kind of connection is the love. And from that flows loving behavior, because why would you do bad things to yourself? Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, how do I love myself? Well, I clothe myself and I feed myself and I house myself and I educate myself. Well, if you are one-on-one -on -one connected with another person, the beloved, you're going to do the same thing for them. So the loving behavior flows from the sense of identification. That's why Jesus says loving the enemy is the highest form of love. Because if you can identify with those that you don't understand, those that, that cook funny-smelling food and you just don't get their culture and you don't even like them, you know, but if you can still identify with them as a human being who is deserving of love and respect and everything that you are, that is getting underneath the hood there, right? And then, of course, if you practice loving behavior long enough with a person, it's only a matter of time before the feelings of affection arise. And so everything flows from the identification. And I think that's it with God's love. Perfect love is perfect connection, perfect unity, absolutely. And so if we understand that about God's love, that what we are experiencing in this love that sometimes gives us a rush of feeling, sometimes it just gives us complete silence, is that sense of unity. Then think about the things in your life that promote that sense of unity. What separates us? What divides us from everything around us, from each other and all of our experiences? It's our, it's our noodle. It's our minds. It's that thought that process that's constantly going on, constantly calculating, constantly trying to survive, living life like a chess game, three steps ahead, planning for every contingency, comparing, you know, downward comparison, looking at someone who's less than you so you can feel superior, or looking up at someone and feeling inferior. All those things we do separate us from everything, including God's love, because it's breaking into that connection, which is the love, that identification that is the love. But just like I commented today, music undercuts that. Music hits us in a completely different space. It doesn't hit us intellectually. It doesn't hit us cognitively. It doesn't hit us on the left side of our brains. It hits us on the right side of our brain. It's intuitive. It sneaks in under the door, if you will, and connects us in a way that is at once emotional it's non-cognitive, and it's spiritual in the sense that it, it links us. When you are really listening to music, when you are lost in the music, you're lost in God's love because you're lost in the unity. Your head has gotten out of the way, and you're able to be completely present. When you're standing in front of a painting of the masters, maybe you're at a, a museum or something, and you get lost in that work of art, and it's just so overwhelming that you go into that same kind of reverie, you're experiencing God's love. We experience it in our relationships. We experience it in, in sports, in walks. If Mike Davis would hear, was here, he'd say you experience it on the golf course. You know? You're walking the course. It's one of the most beautiful places in any community. And you are just lost in the sensations and the feeling and the physical beauty of the place, the feel of the swing. And if you get your head out of the way, you know, you can actually enjoy the game. That I think that's where Dan might be going, is that all of these experiences, every single experience, and if Brother Lawrence can teach us anything, even working in the kitchen, 
can be experiencing God's presence and practicing God's presence if you allow yourself to be completely immersed and enveloped in the experience itself, completely unified with the moment and everything that shares it. They all become the beloved and they all become God's love at that moment. That's why contemplative practice is such a hallmark of what we do here that you need to be practicing if you really want to follow Jesus' way, that descent that just strips away that sense of self so that we can be completely connected. That would be the way I'd... Dan, if you don't like it, send another letter. Good to have you with us, Dan. Hope you and Shirley are there. Anything else you're thinking about? Any other surrogate questions? Wow, I'm getting to the, oh, uh, here we go. <laughs> here we go. It won't be that bad. <laughs> go for it, John. Get right on the mic. Okay. As you know from Dave telling you, I've been a Christian for a long time. My overarching question had always been how to apply what the pastor, the teacher, how to is teaching how to apply it to my life. And I looked at these things through that lens. And this is a little bit of a testimony here too. After a while, all those cords. Okay. After a while, the question kind of changed, and I the question was, how do I apply these things that I'm learning? But still, I'm thinking, why doesn't the pastor teach me? And I always came back to I. <laughs> how do I apply it? to my life so I learned you have to do something and just a quick comment here this is why I bought into Dave's teaching of kingdom it's really great because kingdom here right now calls me to do something every day if it's praying for somebody or giving or fixing the plug or whatever it is, it's really, really a rewarding way to live. That's all. That's beautiful, John. And so well put. You know, when it comes right down to it, I'm just another guy up here. You know, you guys decide to, to come back Sunday after Sunday and, and uh, listen to me, but I'm just a guy. I'm, I'm in the same boat that you are. We are all doing the same thing. I've spent years studying, and so maybe I have something that I can offer, but it's never a prescriptive command. You know, I'm describing for you what has worked for me, what I'm convinced of, and I'm describing for you what I have learned that, that Christians across time and across geography have come to conclusions about and offer those to you and to see if that is part, can be part of your journey as well. But like John says, you know, it's just showing the door. You need to walk through. And until and unless that occurs, then it's all secondhand knowledge. And nothing about God is secondhand. God can't be apprehended god can't be experienced secondhand through the eyes or the or the speech of another person in fact truth truly god's presence is only experienced in the moment when the self is out of the way that's the only time that we can experience i think we talked a couple saturdays ago sundays ago you know from the dao you know the, the dao that can be named is not the eternal dao the, the self that is named is not the self that you really are it, God's presence, your true self, can only be experienced. And so everything that you do that is engendering that experience is taking you along this journey to what you're convinced of. And then you'll express it to somebody else, and it'll be just that, an expression. And they can take it and do whatever they want with it. But if they don't do something with it, then it's just an expression. The Bible is just an expression until we do something with it, until it stokes enough of 
the, the confidence in us that we can actually engender the faith walk that Paul is talking about, that Jesus talks about, to risk something in favor of what we say we believe and see if it's trustworthy or not. But that's the process. That's the way it works. We have to do it. So John's absolutely right. You know, We can try to teach. We teach, I suppose. But what is being done with that expression? That's the key. And it ultimately doesn't matter if we have the same expression of our faith. It just matters that we're acting on it and that it is taking us closer and closer in sync with, in one with Jesus' life and the way he lived. That's the way we know. Oh, well, thank you, dear. She said I was gifted. And for those of you out there, I appreciate that. You know, but once again, again, it's, it's just my expression. And, and so most of you are Richard Rohr fans. He's got another expression. You know, we're, we're kind of closely linked. Some of you also follow Chuck Smith Jr. He's got another expression. And so there are lots of expressions. John says that he is a dyed-in-the-wool even, evangelical, and he will be till the day he dies. That's another expression. But they don't have to be completely mutually exclusive at all. There's overlap here. Like I said, I know John's life. I know that he is where he needs to be. There's nothing broke. You don't fix it. So that's it. If we take our eyes off of the things that divide us, which is intellectual property, that's what divides us. You will never come to intellectual unity, ever. I remember my first day in, uh, in seminary class, in, in the hermeneutics class, you know, the, the pastor stands up there and he says, you know, if we could just get the church into intellectual unity, then everything else would be fine. It's like, well, when is that ever going to happen? Well, it's never going to happen. Intellectual property only serves to divide us because everybody sees it differently. What we want is behavioral unity. We want to stand shoulder to shoulder, not seat eye to eye. That's a different proposition. But that, now getting back to what Nina said, you know, if you're living in fear, if you're processing in fear, then you need everybody to agree with you because you can't tolerate uncertainty. But if you really are moving into this faith walk, if you really are coming to a place of perfect love that casts out the fear, then you can tolerate all sorts of diversity. That's not what matters. You can tolerate having a dog in your room during church. <laughs> his, you should have seen his head popped up when I said dog. I don't know if he knows that word, but hey, how you doing, puppy? Anyway, I hope that I hope that helps bring it around. Any other thoughts here? Questions? Should I go to the paper? Oh, Marion. It's okay. Phil Donahue didn't turn on the the sound. Come on, Phil. <laughs> That's why he gets paid the big bucks. Um, just, just a question. I, I've noticed that there are a lot of um, uh, what do you call revivals going on, and it's not just in the United States. It's now all over the world. And I saw this morning that it's even going on in Chicago, of all places. You know how much is there's so much going on in Chicago, but for there to be a little revival in Chicago, um, a lot of this. I wonder, is it fear of what's going on in the world and they feel the end is coming? What, what are your thoughts on revival? I think revivals are um, beautiful temporal expressions, collective expressions of, of uh, fervor and conviction you know, in, our, in our faith. Passion, fervor, and conviction in our faith. Um, and, and they've happened all throughout history. Um, the, the one that the, the Jesus Revolution movie that is, is going around now is, is speaking about a time in the 60s and 70s when there was this, this um, revival that happened among younger people in the 60s. And uh, these pockets of revival that we're seeing around now, if you look to the 19th century in America, we had um, revivals that were taking place, some of them that resulted in, in durable denominations like Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, LDS, uh, Latter-day Saints, Mormonism, uh, Adventism, and so on and so forth. They were had their genesis in revivals. The interesting thing about the 19th century revivals is that they were all apocalyptic. They all were looking forward to a, a imminent end of the world, and that was what was driving the urgency, and that's what was driving the emotion, and that what was driving attendance, because nothing focuses the mind like a deadline, right? 
And so it was obvious that something like that is going to really draw a crowd. Um, obviously, the deadline's passed, and the end of the world didn't happen, and they, they you know, retooled and revamped and continue. Um, I don't know if these particular revivals, the, the one that was uh, the first one that started in the, uh, the college campus, um, I don't believe was apocalyptic in tone. At least I didn't hear anything about that. I listened to Marion and I listened to the sermon that was preached, like a 20-minute long sermon, before the, the first kids stayed, and, and then it, it continued for weeks beyond that. Um, and there was nothing apocalyptic about it. In fact, his, his, the last lines that he said that engendered the first group of kids to stay and continue to worship was that we need to experience God's love. You know, if we're not doing that, then what are we doing here? And so that, to me, was much more heartening in terms of the quality and the, and the substance of that revival than if it were apocalyptic. Um, but I think the thing to remember about... Um, revivals is that they really occur within the generation that they occur. You know, we would like to think that they're going to have like a, a viral sort of content that they're going to take over the whole world, but they haven't done that in the past that I'm aware of. Uh, maybe you could say that Christianity's start was a, a, a revival. It was a movement within Judaism that then took over. But you could also say, certainly by the third century, but I would argue a lot earlier historically, Christianity had become something very different than Jesus and the first followers were following or, or experiencing. In fact, it was so different by that time that those who wanted the purity of that first expression fled into the deserts and to the mountains to create the beginnings of Christian monasticism because they realized their church was so far off track that it didn't bear any resemblance to what the, the, they were spiritually about. And you could probably say the same thing for the denominations that have endured since uh, the 1800s. Are they the same expression that they were at the beginning? So I think the revivals are for the people who are in them. And it's a beautiful expression. It's a spontaneous expression if it's, if it's not organized and it's true. And, and it, it catches fire and it can greatly change the, the, the texture and the experience of a community. Um, but it's up to each generation to find their own way, just as it's up to every person to find their own way. We can't rely on external sources to power our spiritual formation. It just doesn't work. It's up to us to find that revival within ourselves. And if we can also find it within a group of people, beautiful. Use that as your springboard. Use that as having pushed you further down the path and then continue from there and be grateful. But don't imagine that these revivals are going to be the be-all and end-all of your spiritual journey. Enough said on that? Okay. She asked if it wouldn't it influence other people that maybe don't love the Lord. Absolutely. That's a good thing. That's an absolutely good thing. I mean, that's what evangelism is all about, right? At its best, it's not coercing people to, to say the sinner's prayer or believe. It's introducing them to another way of looking at life. And if you're looking, you know, like Francis of Assisi says, preach the gospel continuously, use words where necessary. If you are living that gospel and that makes you an attractive person to somebody else and they want to know what you know, that's, the, that's attraction, not promotion, right? And that would be another introduction. And so, yes, these revivals can bring other people in. But once again... You know, once the emotion subsides, and it always does, what's left? Is there the, the willingness in that individual who has been introduced to something new to continue on? Now to put their own initiative, their own energy into continuing the process, or will it drop off? That's going to be the, the big distinction and difference. But obviously, I think they're wonderful. I wish they were happening all over the place, you know, all the time because they're great expressions of the spontaneous need. And let's face it, there is more and more uh, perceived need right now. As the, as the world continues to sort of spin what looks like out of control, where more and more the, the illusions are being pulled away and we realize what a knife's edge we're balanced on economically and politically and, and socially in every other way, then it's going to drive people, hopefully, to say, okay, where can I find meaning and purpose if the world looks more and more absurd? I think that's a good thing because it, it will force us to look inward. And as it does that, that can be great, a great start for us. And, uh, but it's up to each of us to make it happen, Captain. Jim, get that man a microphone.
Matthew 7 starts at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I'm curious what your uh, idea ideas might be of what who Jesus was speaking to. What weren't they doing? You know, they 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 said what they were doing. You know, we're prophesying. We're, uh, but it, but it wasn't enough. Um, a couple verses before that, Jesus said, "Only the ones who do the will of my Father will enter into heaven." So he kind of answers the, answers the question before they even asked, you know. But it also makes me think of something that you wrote during Lent a couple of years ago, and it had to do with how Judas was able to do what he did. And you wrote, and I thought it was a great reason, you said that he did not fall in love with Jesus. Um, so to me that implies... I, I love using the word relationship, um, talking about about God. So, what do you think these people didn't do? I mean, were they did they not have that deep loving relationship? You know, they're going around preaching, but um, what do you think their heart was really like? Well, I think it's a brilliant juxtaposition to put Judas into that question because I think that is a great exemplar of what we're talking about here. You know, uh, yes, I, I do think Judas was looking um, instrumentally at Jesus, programmatically at Jesus. To he was Jesus was a furtherance of an agenda. It seems like Judas was much more. Um, bought into the idea of kingdom as being this political um, uh, sovereign nation uh, that was going to be established by the Mashiach who was supposed to be this this political warrior king. And so he was looking at Jesus for that kind of relationship and everything seems to flow from that. He never just fell in love with him the way Mary did in that wonderful um, you know, Spy Wednesday story uh, Mary comes in and, and just pours all the perfume on his feet, and then he's outraged because that could have been given to the poor. So he's still thinking programmatically. You know, He wasn't thinking about just the complete abandonment in a moment of absolute love where those walls fall away that we were just talking about between I and thou, right? And, uh, and so, yeah, he never experienced that. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is talking to. Remember where he's quoting from is right at the tail end of the, of the uh, Sermon on the Mount. So Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He's quoting from the end of 7. So we're getting right to the end of, the, of the, this complete restatement of all of Jesus' teaching, a complete compilation of all of Jesus' teaching. And right from the get-go, what Jesus is doing in Matthew 5 is trying to redefine the law. Because the people that Jesus is talking to have been taught primarily by the Pharisees for about two to three hundred years now. And they had refined their idea of the law down to the last jot and tittle. And it was all about following every single little law, and not just the written laws, of which they pulled out 613 from what we would call the Old Testament, but then added hundreds, possibly thousands of what they called hedges or the oral tradition around all of those 613 laws so that you would have to break a bunch of oral tradition laws before you broke the actual written law, which would be a bad thing. But it was all about following these rules and obeying your way into God's good graces and favor. And I think this is what Jesus is trying to tear down. This is, you know, you could, you could take it all the way down to this is Jesus every time at bat. He's trying to get us to graduate obedience. We don't obey our way into kingdom. Now remember, kingdom is this world now. It's the quality of life, the quality of presence that we have right here, right now. Because a lot of people will take what he wrote and put it into an end times, um, you know, last judgment seat with God type of, of situation. But it's not, he's not talking about that. If you really want to go where Jesus is going, you can't just follow all these rules and think that you've got some sort of legal fig leaf that is going to save you. 
because your heart is still far from me. You haven't fallen in love with me. It's not about building things for my sake in my name. It's not about doing great things and building edifices or gathering great groups of people. That has nothing to do with it. That might happen, but the whole point is, have you fallen in love with me? Have you let your barriers down? Have you become vulnerable? Have you completely become one with me and the Father who I am one with? Because if you haven't done that, then you don't know me. And remember, no, yada, originally the word for hand is about intimate experience. When the Jew talks about knowing, it's not about an intellectual idea. It's about intimate experience over time. Do you have that? If you don't, then depart from me. You're still practicing lawlessness, ironically, by practicing the law to the nth degree. But you are lawless. And when I looked that word up, you know, one of the word, the first entry that came in was an infant and a colt. And then the idea of lawlessness came into play. So what does an infant, a colt, and lawlessness have to do with? They're all immature. They're all unformed. They're all unripe. And so we get back to Taba and Bisha, right? The idea of good and evil being ripe and unripe, mature, immature, right place, right time, wrong place, wrong time. Same thing here. With what he's saying is you're still practicing this immature form that is the precursor. You've got to learn to walk before you can run, but that's just to keep you alive long enough. Follow the law long enough to be able to actually write it on your hearts, as Deuteronomy 6 says, and then live it in a love relationship. That's where he's trying to take us. And that's what kingdom is all about. You can't enter kingdom any other way because kingdom is the experience of this love and this connection and this oneness and unity and all of that. Okay? Hey, let's do this. There's one that... I don't have much time. Do I even get into this now? Maybe not because I don't know we have enough time for it. And I won't do it. I won't do it justice. But someone wrote in one that's really heartfelt. But there's so many moving pieces here. I mean, it's really embedded in the question are like four separate questions, and then embedded in a couple questions. They're they're complex questions. <laughs> so you know, what a complex question is: Have you stopped beating your wife? When did you stop beating your wife? You know. And, and so it, it implies that uh, there's another implication. There's a couple of those in there. And so pu pulling all that apart, but yeah, I'd need a good 15 minutes and we just don't have it. So let me, how am I going to do this? Next Sunday. I mean, I, I don't know. We're, we're kind of, seems like we're sort of petering out with questions here. Uh, let, let's see how it goes. Maybe we can split the time next Sunday between answering at least that question or a couple of the quick ones and then maybe talking about Lent too. Maybe that, that would be the good use of next Sunday. We'll kind of do some double duty there. Um, Vaughn, did, did everybody, Vaughn is here this today. Did you notice that? So Vaughn has been in Chile, and he's back up here for some medical things. Uh, did you have something you wanted to say? Yes. Hold on a second. Can you get him a mic? He's running from the law. He's running from the law. <laughs> the Chilean police, the federales down there are after Hi, it's good to be back. My goodness, thank you. Good to see you all. It's nice to see you on TV, by the way, by you, by the Zoom, so it's nice. Uh, Dave, you said uh, many weeks ago that uh, Christ didn't say, follow me, right? Wait, again? Christ did not say, follow me. did say, follow him. Is that correct? Did I understand well, that? Well, you know, he did say, follow me. Obviously, he said, follow me. But he also said, I am the way yeah. and the truth and the life. Now, his followers understood because they named themselves followers of the way. They didn't call themselves followers of Jesus. They understood that they needed to follow the way of Jesus if they were going to get where Jesus was going. So they made that distinction. But Jesus did say follow Okay, me. I misunderstood the question. Thanks. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the first things he said to his disciples, right? Follow me. You know, where are you going, Lord? Where are you staying tonight? Come and see. You know, it was always that. Always experiential. I mean, getting all the way back to what John said and what the theme, I guess, for this Sunday has been, that it's experiential. You, you can't arrive at this cognitively. You know, the cognitive only serves to give you a framework that allows you to take the next steps, but you've got to take the steps. That's why Jesus never answered a rational question with a rational answer. It was always with the invitation to come and see. Follow me. And if you were willing to drop your nets... 
which is all of your livelihood, metaphorically speaking, everything that you've come to rely on, everything that you see as your survival, if you're willing to sell everything and give it to the poor, if you're willing to let go of your, your connection, your identification with your possessions. See, once again, it's all about that stripping down process, getting down to the bottom so that your head is no longer standing in between you and everyone and everything else. It is our consciousness that is so important to us while we're breathing here but at the same time is separating us from everything that we really need to be connected with. That is the balance that needs to be struck between now and not yet, right? Between head and heart. If we can strike that balance where we still can plan and be responsible and do the things we need to do and still survive here and work, but never let it overshadow our ability to enter a moment completely and be completely immersed in it so that we can feel God's presence and know that we know that there's something more here than just what we can see, taste, smell, and measure with our instruments. That's the whole key to this. That's kingdom. That will take us someplace that we really want to go. All right, let's leave it there for this. This is another great one. Thank you so much, everyone. Let's, uh, hold on, let's just pray for a second. Father, once again, thank you for this safe space. Thank you for this roof over our heads. Thank you for everyone over these 15, 16 years who has given so much to make this moment right here, this Sunday, possible. And help us to move through the balance of Lent in a way that sets us up for Good Friday, for Easter, that will really allow us to experience something different, a turning, a changing that Easter actually represents. Help us to prepare for that, individually and collectively. But thank you for everything that you've given us all along the way to facilitate that journey, Father. We love you. Never let us forget. We can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.